0: Now, we just prayed for our forgiveness, which is good because Henry just committed an ecclesiastical sin. I'm wondering if anybody knows what it is. He got the preacher up early. That's always dangerous. That's always dangerous. Of course, I'm just kidding. It has been a pleasure to be here now these last three weeks. I do want to take a moment to introduce my wife. Uh, Sue is here last week. My daughters surprised me with a visit, and uh, and Sue is here. And together we will uh, uh, conduct the marriage seminar, the ABCs of marriage, on Tuesday. Uh, But please feel free to stop by after the service. Her name is Sue there, and she's in the, the red shirt there about midway back. I also want to thank you for the gracious hospitality. The house has been Wonderful. Um, uh, a number of you have asked me how's the writing coming, um, and I'm actually writing on my PhD dissertation, and it's gone well. There was a slight interruption last week because a, a dear friend uh, and former colleague uh, at Miami University passed away. Uh, he was 96, and uh, so I had to travel to Ohio in the middle of the week and do the funeral, can do that funeral. So. That wasn't scheduled, uh, as it never is. But uh, still, it's been a very productive time, and we'll be here through leaving on Wednesday and uh, continue to to get the kind of time that just being away from everything allows you to do. So thank you for that hospitality, and thank you for the continued support for NETS. Uh, We feel honored uh, that you are supporting us and trying to move forward. Uh, the ministry of the gospel in new england and beyond we are honored by your support well would you bow with me in a word of prayer and we'll get into it father thank you for this time thank you for your grace thank you for your son we thank you for the good work that he has done and that he continues to do even now as he intercedes for us Uh, we thank you father for the hope that is ours Uh, that a day is coming when we will be able to worship You unfettered. And yet, even now, we rejoice in the fact that we can worship You in spirit and truth. We bless You for the good work that the Lord Jesus has done in our life through His Spirit according to Your almighty and eternal plan. We commit this time to You now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when the pilgrims came to New England back in 1620, they had one overriding desire. They wanted the freedom to worship God as they saw fit. Now, eventually that desire was enshrined in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now today, I want to talk about that freedom, our freedom to worship, not really from the political right that we gained from our Constitution, but from a spiritual perspective, let me ask you some questions to try to focus our time this morning. Do you know how God defines worship? Are you clear that in Christ, your greatest freedom is the freedom to worship our great God? And do you know practically what daily worship, whether it's private or public, do you know practically what that daily worship looks like? These are some questions that we want to address. And obviously to do that, you have to step back because we all come into the game assuming we know the answers to those questions. So we've got to be willing to ask them anew, ask them afresh. Now, I want to begin this morning by just reviewing where we've been so far this month. There has been a method to my madness. You might not have been able to perceive it, uh, but there has been. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, passage we looked at last week. I just want to read verses 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. Starting in verse 17, Paul says this Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, God in Christ, we said last week, has freed us to behold His glory, to fix our hope on Him on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his death, burial and resurrection. We once were blind, but now by God's grace we see our great God in the face of his son. You may remember from last week we said we see him in creation. All things were made through him. We see him in the church, we see him in the sacraments, the ordinances, we see them, we see him in each other, don't we? Because the very Spirit of Christ lives within us. And finally, we see Him in God's Word. All of Scripture points to, prophesies to, reveals Jesus Christ. There's no part of Scripture that's not ultimately about Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when we gaze at Him? We said last week, as we gaze at Him, we're transformed into His image. You are becoming what you behold. And what highlights that image? Well, in the hereafter, we will be transformed into the body of His glory, the Scriptures tell us. But in the here and now, we're transformed, if you will, into the body of His humility. And that humility, that life, of humility is the pathway to glory. If you won't bear the cross, we sing, then you can't wear the crown. That humility is the pathway to glory. But regardless, in both cases, we are being transformed into worshipers, aren't we? Now we're worshiping now. It'll be better then. Right now, you and I have been freed to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, I I want you to step back for a minute and remember that when you came to Christ, whenever that was, even if it was when you were a child, there was a profound change that occurred. You may not have experientially felt it as deeply as, as, say, a person like me who came to Christ later in life. But here was the truth regardless of when you came to Christ. Formally, formally, we couldn't worship God. As Ezekiel 36 says, we had hearts of stone. We had hearts that were unresponsible, unresponsive, unable to see, not to mention to worship God. But now we who know Jesus Christ have been given a new spirit who has done what? He's given us a new heart, a heart of flesh the Bible says. And that heart of flesh is responsive to God. It's able to see God. Albeit imperfectly, we see through a mirror dimly, through a glass darkly. Our vision has not been perfected. But nevertheless, we can now see God. Now, formerly we were slaves to sin with uncircumcised hearts controlled by sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness with circumcised hearts that have the law of God inscribed upon them. You and I were formerly of the flesh, but now we're of the Spirit. We're able to see God. And as a result, this always happens when you see God. As a result, we're now able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. If, if, By the way, if you want to think about Your non-Christian friends or non-Christian family and you ask the question, you know, why don't they worship God? Why are they suppressing the knowledge of God, as Romans 1 teaches? It's because they can't see Him. They can't see Him. That's a miracle. God has given us sight and as a result, spiritual eyes, the eyes of faith. And as a result, we're now able to worship Him in spirit and truth. And we want to ask the question, what does that mean? What does the freedom to worship actually look like when it's activated? Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. In the beginning was Romans. A little joke. I like the book of Romans. I'm doing my Ph.D. dissertation on the book of Romans. So I'm a little partial, I confess. Let me pick it up in verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also, Gentiles, have been disobedient, that because of the mercy, I'm sorry, Jews, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy. I really boogered that up, didn't I? Let me read that again. For just as you, that's Gentiles, once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience, so these also, the Jews, uh, have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also, the Jews, may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, both Jew and Gentile, so that he may show mercy to all. And then we have this fantastic uh, doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen." Paul just could not help himself. And now he returns to the story. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, in light of verse 32 in particular, that God has shut up all in disobedience so that He might show mercy to all. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Alright, so God has shut up all, both Jew and Gentile, unto disobedience, that he might show mercy. To all, both Jew and Gentile. And this mercy is the basis for Paul's exhortation in verse 1 of chapter 12 by the mercies of God. Yes, on the basis of his manifold mercy that has set us free from sin's horrifying penalty, from sin's enslaving power, and finally will set us free from sin's menacing presence, on the basis of that glorious and effectual mercy we are urged to present our whole selves as a sacrifice to God. Like Savior, like saint. We're implored to offer ourselves, just as Jesus did, to God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to present oneself as a sacrifice? I'm guessing that you're hearing echoes of the Old Testament cultic worship in Paul's charge. Words like offering, like sacrifice, like worship. The temple should come to mind. Priests in the Old Testament should come to mind. Sacrificial animals should come to mind. Soothing aromas should come to mind. Yes, dear brothers and sisters, you and I, Members of the royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2, are summoned by God to offer up our lives as a sacrifice to Him as the supreme act of worship. Now, what was restricted to the temple in the Old Testament is now unleashed through Christ to every believer in every place. Again, We're trying to understand what that means, this idea of presenting our lives as sacrifices to Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to spend a little time reading a couple of places here. Just to get this clear in our mind, this presentation idea. What does it mean? Let me pick it up in verse 12. Really, I'll pick it up in verse 11 of Romans 6. Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Keep your finger there for a moment. We were formerly under the law and under its condemnation. But now in Christ, we're under grace. And thus, we're free. We're free to present our members not to sin, but to righteousness. Because sin no longer has dominion over us. It can't order us around. It can't push us around. It can't tell us what to do. in In the old days, not the good old days, the bad old days, before we came to Christ, when sin said jump, the only response we could give was, how high? We could not say no. But now in Christ... When sin says jump, we can say no. That's the freedom that Paul is talking about here. We are free because sin no longer has dominion over us. We get this same idea in Romans chapter 7. Would you pick it up there with me, starting in verse 1? Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, by faith we've died to the law through Christ's death and been freed to be joined to another, to Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to live in the flesh. We no longer, in fact, live in the flesh. The important idea here is this is reality. This isn't a command. Do not live in the flesh. Now, I don't have any trouble with that command, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, as a result... We, in fact, no longer live in the flesh. If you're studying Latin or studying Greek, it's in the indicative mood. It's not in the imperative mood. These are indicatives. They are presenting reality as the author wants to present it. We no longer live in the flesh bearing fruit for death, but we serve in newness of the Spirit bearing fruit for God. You see, we're free in Christ to worship God by presenting ourselves to Him as a sacrifice. Right there we should just pause, just as a prelude to my conclusion. Because this is good news. You weren't free to do this before. You know, you can come to church with a little bit of a ho-hum attitude, can't you? It's like, okay, another Sunday. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, come on, come on, yada, yada, yada. I know all the words. I've heard them all in my 30 years of pastoring. But we actually ought to take a step back and say, I cannot believe that God has been so gracious to me as to free me so that I can now worship Him in spirit. And in truth, I'm no longer deceived. I'm no longer confused. I'm no longer asking, does He even exist? No. He's revealed Himself to me in His Son, by His Spirit. And I now know that the God in Heaven is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for my sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day. And this is an immeasurable privilege that I now get to bow my knee and worship Him, whether it's on Sunday or all the other days of the week. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord for such generosity to free us to be able to do that. Now the question is, we're to present ourselves as a sacrifice, but what kind of sacrifice? Paul continues with that Old Testament imagery. He gives us three adjectives that equally modify the word sacrifice. Now, the problems with a lot of the translations is they put one or two of the adjectives before the word sacrifice. You know, mine says living and holy sacrifice. I think the ESV says a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But they're really, from a grammatical point of view, they're completely equal, and they all come after, not that word order in Greek is all All significant, but they all come after and there's no reason in this context to to lift one of those sacrifices up above the others. Um, I could make an argument for that, but I don't think it's a compelling argument. I think there's three adjectives that modify this word, living, holy and acceptable, or I would translate it well-pleasing. And I want to take some time to unpack those. First of all, a living sacrifice. What does that mean? At first, it seems like it's an oxymoron. Sacrifices are designed to die, not live. So what's Paul getting at with this idea? Well, as I just read in Romans, we are now alive from the dead. God has made us alive from the dead. We were dead. He's made us alive from the dead. And we're to present ourselves as such as those who are alive from the dead. In other words, we died with Christ by faith so that we could lay down our lives for him and for the gospel as a perpetual sacrifice. You could say it this way. He's made us alive so we could die. That's what we're talking about here. A living sacrifice. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus did both in his life and in his death. He'd offered himself up as a sacrifice. But it's also a holy sacrifice This is meant to uh, cause you to hear the echoes of Old Testament priests. We're set apart, just like a priest would in the Old Testament. We're consecrated fully to God and to His service. Obviously, that's what Christ did. He came to do the Father's will. That's what Hebrews tells us. He was set apart, and His sacrifice on the cross was therefore the holiest act of all. The most consecrated act that's ever occurred was Jesus offering Himself up on the cross. So our duty is to completely devote ourselves to Christ and to His kingdom. That's a holy sacrifice that we make to God. Living, holy, and one more, acceptable or well-pleasing. This ought to bring to mind ideas of offerings that had fragrant aromas in the Old Testament. Remember that? I like to always remind folk, especially if they're getting a little older and a little more portly like I am, uh, that the Lord loves the fat. And that was offered up as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. That's right. You and I are to serve at the pleasure, not of the president, if you're a West Wing devotee. Some of you don't even know what I just said. uh, I like that phrase. We're here to serve at the pleasure of the president. That's what they said in that seven year series. Well, we're here to serve at the pleasure of the God of heaven. That's our purpose in life. We're here to be pleasing to Him. Our lives are to be a perpetually refreshing, pleasing, aroma of sacrifice to the King of Kings. And we're free to do that. We're free to be a fragrant aroma in Christ. We're free to be a fragrant aroma to our God. By the way, just as Christ was when He walked on this earth, He always did what was pleasing to His Father, John 8 tells us. That's right. Now, as I look at the scriptures, I see at least four ways that this fragrant aroma idea manifests itself as far as our worship requirements are concerned. Four ways at least to be well-pleasing, to offer up a fragrant aroma to the Lord. And I want you to look at these verses with me. They're, they're short. We'll move quickly through it. First of all. As a sacrifice of praise, we offer ourselves as a fragrant aroma through a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again that when I read the Psalms and I see the emotion of praise, I feel convicted. I feel like a deadbeat. You know, I, I want to do something to spark some life into me because I can be so ho-hum. And, you know, the Psalms ultimately are a book of praise. I say that because that's how the arranger of, of the Psalter ended the Psalms. The last five Psalms are praise. The last Psalm is praise, isn't it? And, and it's unrestrained. You can't feel like there's any governor on this praise when you're talking about singing and dancing. How how often do we dance here at Southwest Harbor? (laughs) My guess is never. It's just not part of our tradition, is it? And I'm in this same tradition. I grew up Presbyterian. It's a more staid tradition. I'm not busting on you. I hope you're not hearing this and feeling like I'm busting on you. I'm really busting on myself. And it really is a matter of the heart. But if you're singing and you're dancing and you're playing the tambourine and you're doing some antiphonal thing like in Exodus 15 where the women do this, then the men respond to that. And you're playing the trumpet and the lyre and the harp. And you're shouting... And you're clanging cymbals loudly. I mean, there's nothing restrained about that, is there? I'm an Ohio State Buckeye fan. I've told you that before. And one of the most exciting athletic events to attend is a Division One football game in college. The stadiums are huge. You can stuff about 110,000 people into Ohio State's football stadium, the Horseshoe. And it's crazy. It's just crazy. And someone fumbles and everybody cheers. And someone gets a touchdown and everybody cheers. And they cheer crazily. Now, not me. I'm very subdued and, and respectful and remembering that I'm a Christian. Um, I mean, if the gear is there. That's what I'm saying. The ability to get excited is there. And you and I are free to offer up a sacrifice of praise. In fact, look what Hebrews tells us. Through Him, Jesus Christ, then, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. God is pleased when He smells our praise. He's delighted in it. He loves to be honored. He's worthy to be honored, and he calls us to do that, to lift lift up a sacrifice of praise. Also, though, he calls us to offer up a sacrifice. I've lost my place in my, uh, there we go, a sacrifice of love. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Same idea. Are, are Are you catching the overall notion that God is looking for us to continually be well-pleasing to Him. That what we do is satisfying to Him. That it is a pleasing aroma of sacrifice our lives are. And here we're talking about a sacrifice of love. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are My disciples. If you have love, for one another oh this is a hard sacrifice isn't it it's a hard thing to perpetually be offering up love for the brethren in heaven won't be a problem sin's presence will be vanquished but right now it's hard it's hard to deny myself to consider others as more important than myself do you hear how radical that is to actually consider another in the body of Christ as more important than me and my preferences and my agenda and what concerns me, oh, that that takes supernatural power. But the good news is we have it. The Spirit of God lives within us so that we are able. That doesn't mean it's easy, but we are able by that Spirit, to offer up ourselves as a fragrant aroma of love to our King of Kings, to our Heavenly Father. Third is a sacrifice of prayer. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. I want you to notice that we're continually pivoting off the Old Testament. Revelation 5. When you're reading something in the New Testament and you just can't figure out where on earth this is coming from, it's probably because you're not connecting it to its Old Testament base. So just keep looking. Keep trying to see, okay, where was this in the Old Testament? Which will illuminate what we're talking about. This is one here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When he had taken the book, Jesus Christ obviously was given the book, to play out the judgments on the world. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you know where that incense reference comes from? Are you, are you thinking Old Testament with me? So we had the bronze altar that was outside the temple, Where the animals were sacrificed. And then we have an altar that's inside the temple. Remember where it was? It was in the holy place. Right next to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Do you remember that? And that altar was called what? The altar of incense. And there the priests and there's designs in Exodus 30 as to how to make the incense because we want it to be sweet-smelling. There the priests were offering up incense to the Lord. And it was pleasing to Him. And now we see its fulfillment. Its fulfillment are our prayers. Do you think of your prayers as a burden to God or as an irritation to God or as an interruption to God? Or do you conceive of your prayers as actually being a fragrant aroma to God? Isn't that helpful? i, I got to tell you, I tend to think of my prayers as superfluous. You know what I mean by that? It's like God is a sovereign God. He's going to carry out His will. And, you know, one little person uh, is, is, is not even as significant as a, as a speck of sand on the seashore in the grand scheme of things. That's not how the Bible presents it. Our prayers are a fragrant aroma, and You say, well, aren't those just the prayers that are like really spiritual prayers? I don't think so. Or I could say it this way. All your prayers are spiritual prayers because you are a spiritual person. You are in the spirit. Your prayers, by definition, are spiritual prayers. And whether you're confessing your sins... You think God likes to hear you confess your sins? You bet He does. He's hearing you confess your sins and He's looking down and He's saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. They're getting it. They're understanding what I want. You think God is pleased when you pray for others? When you labor over their concerns? Oh yeah. He's like, okay... They're really getting what love's involving, to pray for others. You think He's pleased when you ask Him for your daily bread? Yeah. He's saying, look, you're not taking it for granted. You're understanding that every good and perfect gift, including your daily sustenance, comes from where? Comes from above. Comes from the Father of lights. And then finally, as a sacrifice of service, you don't need to turn to Romans 15. But let me just say this. The Scriptures present, Paul presents his ministry to the, to the Gentiles as a sacrifice, an offering to God. And you can do the same in your ministry to one another. All that you do to serve one another is an offering to God. So every little thing that you do is an offering to God. By the way, we know that. From Matthew 25, don't we? You remember when Jesus divides the, the sheep and the goats? And He says, you know, you did this. You visited me when I was sick. You clothed me when I had no clothes. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me something to drink when I, when I was thirsty. And they're like, well, when did we do that? Well, you did that when you did that to the brothers of mine, even the least of them. That service is a fragrant aroma. It's a sacrifice that you're offering up to God. I don't know about you, but that encourages me to not chafe when I'm doing what seems to be unimportant things, like cleaning the toilets in the church, or sweeping the floor, or folding the bulletins, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter, does it? There aren't like, well, those are really impressive acts of service, and these don't matter. They're all fragrant aromas to God. Whatever you do to serve one another is a fragrant aroma to God. Well, we could linger on those for a long time. I've already used up the time that Henry gave me. Um, In fact, we're in a little bit of trouble right now, but I'll move along. So we're free indeed. We're compelled by God's mercy to follow our Savior, daily presenting ourselves to God as a sacrifice, alive, fully set apart for His purpose, and continually offering ourselves up as a fragrant aroma. Which leads us to the essence of the command. How does Paul summarize the sacrifice in verse two? He calls it your spiritual worship, or the NASB calls it reasonable worship. The King James calls it your true and proper worship. Uh, The NIV calls it your true and proper worship. I like Doug Moo, who translates it simply as your true worship. So now we have it. What does it mean to worship God? The essence of it is to present yourselves to God as a sacrifice. If we're not doing that, we haven't even begun to worship, no matter how we sing or how much money we give. God is looking for true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Now, true worship emulates Christ. It's the presentation of our whole lives. We have the freedom that is ours. But what are the things that we need to do to make sure we stay on the worship track? Verse 2 said two things. Not conforming to the world's values. Rather being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Those two things quickly. We offer ourselves up as a sacrifice. Living, holy, well-pleasing. By not conforming to the world. Do you remember what John said in 1 John chapter 2? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We're not too embrace or pursue those things. We're not to be conformed to the world's values, the lust of the flesh, probably sexual impurity. Or the lust of the eyes, probably coveting and materialism. Or the the pride of life, probably boasting in our own achievements. You and I are free to not conform to the values of this evil age. We're to resist the devil's lies, to refuse to pursue worldly lusts, in a nutshell, to say no to sin, to say no to sin. And when we fail, we confess our sins. Forgive us our sins, we prayed this morning. That's the first part. There's a second part. We're not only to not conform to the world, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. What does that mean, to renew our minds? by living out our new status, our new identity in Christ. We're just living that out. And that's a process of renewal. And what is that new identity? Who are we? As I said earlier, we're spirit people. We're not flesh people. You're not in the flesh anymore. You don't ping-pong back and forth. Sometimes I'm in the flesh, sometimes in the spirit. No, that's bad theology. You're in the spirit. You're in the Spirit. You're always in the Spirit. That's a category. That's a realm. That's a change of status. You say, well, when I sin, am I in the Spirit? Yes, because you're in the Spirit realm. That doesn't mean that's a good thing, but it doesn't change your realm. It doesn't change your status. You and I in Christ are Spirit people. According to Romans 8, we're people who are in the Spirit. We're according to the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We mind the things of the Spirit. And to mind the things of the Spirit are to mind the fruit of the Spirit. We're thinking about, we're fixating on, we're focused on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the things of the Spirit that we're to mind, that we're to fix our hearts on. And as we do that, remember we said you become what you behold. So we're minding, we're beholding the things of the Spirit. And as we do that, which by the way, according to Romans 14, characterizes God's kingdom. That's kingdom isn't eating and drinking, is it? It's love and joy and peace. This is God's kingdom. As we mind those things, we're transformed into them. And such transformation, it glorifies God into verse 2. It showcases God's perfection. We test who God is and demonstrate that His good and well-pleasing and perfect will is beautiful. We prove out the beauty of God and the beauty of His character when we renew our minds and are transformed by it. So, where does that leave us? By God's unsearchable, unfathomable mercy, we are now free to offer ourselves to God in imitation of our Savior as a living, holy, and well pleasing sacrifice. And we stay on that track by refusing to be conformed to this world and instead choosing to be transformed by the renewing of our minds into the values of His kingdom. And if you're in Christ this morning, you're free to do that. I want you to rejoice and celebrate that freedom. Because you didn't have it before Jesus got a hold of you. You're free to be a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice. But if you're outside of Christ, if you're here today, and I would particularly highlight the younger people I'm not saying younger people by definition are usually non-Christians, I'm not saying that but a lot of times that is the case but young or old, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ the Bible says that you're still enslaved to your sin it doesn't matter whether you're a nice person or a hellion it doesn't really matter you're still enslaved your sin, to its penalty, to its power, and failing to repent eternally to its presence. Now, you might think you're free. You may feel like you're free. But the Bible says you're actually a slave. You're mired in a life of self-service and self-absorption. You worship self. But I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. The best news. The best news in the world. And that is this. If the Son shall set you free, if you will allow the Son to set you free, you shall be free indeed. And so I say to you, listen to this old guy. Come to Christ. Beg Christ today. For His mercy. Ask God to be gracious. Confess your sins. Repent of the fact that your heart is wicked and that you justly deserve His judgment. And ask Him to set you free. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to come into your life and fill you with His Spirit. And He'll do that. He'll do that. If you've already been set free, as I said, I'd like to suggest two things for you to consider. The first, just be thankful. Just rejoice. Wouldn't it be more pleasant to be around you if you were a a more thankful person? You know, I happen to be around a pretty thankful person, and it's a joy. She's got another matter to contend with but it's fun to be around people that are thankful that are rejoicing and we have every reason to rejoice don't we I know life's been hard for Southwest Harbor I get that I understand that I know Blake he's a good personal friend of mine but there's something that transcends all of that what transcends it all is that God has been merciful to us. He's been gracious to us in His Son. Our names are recorded in heaven. And for that reason, it's reasonable that we offer up a sacrifice of praise. It's a a pleasing aroma. God wants to hear it. He knows life is tough here. He knows that sin is still having its way in many cases, even in the church. But nevertheless, He wants us to get above that and recognize He's King. And He has set us free. We have a bright future in Christ, don't we? And so I say to you, don't hold back. Don't be polite and proper in your praise. Wash His feet with your tears of joy. And dry and kiss those feet with hearts overflowing with gladness for you have been set free. I have been set free by the Sun. Praise God. Praise God. And then second, don't be afraid to ask yourself hard questions regarding that aroma that's wafting up from your life. What does God smell when he smells your love for others? What aroma does your service emit? Is it well pleasing? Start with your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, and ask yourself this Am I offering up a sacrifice of love to my family? considering them as more important than myself, being willing to die to my preferences, to my rights, to my privileges, so that I might emulate Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a fragrant aroma and ransom for many. Does the aroma of my love smell more like someone who is trying to save his life rather than someone who is willing on a daily basis to lose his life for Christ's sake in the gospel. Be willing to ask yourself those questions, not to heap guilt on you, but to purify the aroma that it might be even more pleasing to our Heavenly Father. If you ask those questions and you say, yeah, I'm not liking what I smell here. Then it's time to stop being conformed to this world. You have the freedom to say no. And instead to be transformed by confessing your sins. Forgive us our sins, we pray today. And taking up the cross of self-denial and presenting yourself over and over again anew to God as a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice. You're free to do that, beloved. You're free to do that. You're free to be fragrant. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word, how it instructs us, how it convicts us, how it transforms us. We thank You, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Our perfect sacrifice. Oh, let us emulate Him, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.